Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts today. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel Sun. Yo, what's up? Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to state, no AI programs were used or harmed in the creation of this episode. The research for this show and all of its work was created solely by humans, me and Dan. So if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 156 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. Now, to see this full list of Patreon episodes, you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there will be an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have previously published that have no ads at all. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over CIA drug running, where we talk about kind of how the CIA first started, then we go into the timeline of the CIA smuggling all throughout the world. Then we hop into some strange facts and findings, into theories, then into our own personal thoughts and theories. So you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over marijuana. So how this episode will go today is that we're going to talk about what is marijuana, and then we'll go into the history of it, and then we'll go into strange facts and findings, theories, and of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In the United States during the 1930s, the media ran wild with propaganda. Claims that young Americans were falling prey to a dangerous substance. This drug would consume its user having them lose their sanity and commit violent crimes. You and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. For the next century, this false information decimated families, turning America into the country with the highest incarceration rate in the entire world. This is marijuana. So to start this episode off today, 
we have to briefly talk about what marijuana is, and then we will get into the history of it and discuss the key players and their corruption in using propaganda to push certain agendas regarding this topic. So Dan, can you start this off for us? All right. So marijuana is the informal name for a plant known as cannabis sativa, which, by the way, I know some consider the name marijuana a derogatory term due to the history of the name itself and why it was called that. We are aware of this and we'll go in more depth about that here in a bit. But anyway, back to the plant itself. So this plant has been cultivated for at least 5,000 years and is one of the oldest agricultural commodities not grown for food. The stalks of the plant contains fibers that have been woven for millennia to make rope, canvas, and even paper. Now, most plants require birds and the bees to help them pollinate, and most flowers have pollen and ovules within a single flower that takes some outside force to help put the two sexual parts together. Ooh, not cannabis, though. Cannabis is anemophilous, which means that it is wind-pollinated. This is why the flower of cannabis is green and not colorful since it does not require creatures to be attracted to it. In fact, cannabis actually creates a smell to repel insects and animals from it. So the flowering buds of the female cannabis plant secrete a sticky yellow resin that is rich with cannabinoids, which contain more than 60 compounds unique to marijuana. Now, several of these compounds are psychoactive, with the majority of them being Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, a.k.a. THC, which is the stuff that makes you high when you smoke cannabis. Now, like we mentioned earlier, this plant has been cultivated for at least 5,000 years. However, we are not going to go back that far when talking about the history of it. Instead, we are going to start off in the early 1600s. So around this time, the British government started encouraging colonial farmers to produce hemp which is a form of cannabis with low levels of the psychoactive ingredient THC. The farmers began planting cannabis, and the fast-growing plant was used for production of rope, clothing, and paper, which this fiber at the time was critical to the British and Spanish empires. So we fast-forward a few years later, and in 1619, the Virginia Assembly passed a law that flat-out required farmers to grow it. They said, hey, you're going to grow it, whether you like it or not. Also, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maryland eventually allowed hemp to be exchanged as legal tender in order to stimulate its production and relieve the colonial money shortages. The domestic production of hemp flourished, especially in Kentucky, until after the Civil War, when it was replaced by imports from Russia and by other domestic materials. Oh, and just a little knowledge nugget here, but it is known that a number of founding fathers in the United States, such as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, did grow hemp on their estates. However, no one is really sure if they were aware that if you smoked it, the plant's psychoactive properties got you high. Oh, I guarantee they smoked it. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, hell yeah. You know George Washington did. Anyways, so towards the end of the 19th century, cannabis became a popular ingredient in medicines and was sold openly at pharmacies in one-ounce herbal packages and in alcohol-based tinctures as a cure for migraines, insomnia, and various other things. Alright, so we fast forward to the early 1900s. Around this time, Mexico was going through some shit. 
The president of Mexico was a guy named Porfirio Diaz, and he had been the president for over 30 years, serving over seven terms. Now, Diaz was a dictator, and with this power, he didn't help the people that much. Instead, he made economic policies that only benefited a small circle of allies and foreign investors. Of course, this pissed off a lot of citizens, and they wanted Mexico to become a democracy. So in 1908, Diaz was like, hey, I think Mexico should return to being a democracy, and since my ass is so old, I'm not going to run for office again. Everybody was like, hell yeah, we finally can become a democracy and we'll get the support we need. I wish that would happen in our government. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Well, two years later, in 1910, Diaz was like, you know what I said earlier? Psych! And decided to run in the election that year. (laughs) He pulled a sneaky, damn it, he got me on that one. Yeah, and he was 80 years old at this time. Damn, he's old. Yeah, so this pissed off a lot of citizens in Mexico. However, they were somewhat still hopeful that Diaz would be voted out of office. I mean, he didn't say they weren't going to have an election. He was going to have one against somebody. So the person running against Diaz was an individual named Francisco Madero. And it was pretty much well known that Madero would win the election and become the new president due to how popular he was and how unpopular Diaz was. Well. It didn't turn out that way. So before the election was held, Diaz had Madero arrested and imprisoned. The election was then held, and it was announced that Diaz was the winner, getting almost 99% of the votes. So needless to say, this pissed off the people in Mexico, and it triggered the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Now, why do we mention this revolution? What does it have to do with marijuana? Well, that Mexican Revolution led to a large number of individuals leaving the country and immigrating into the United States and dispersing throughout the Southwest. Now, at the time, the traditional means of intoxication for individuals in Mexico was smoking cannabis. I mean, it was normal for them, which, of course, they continued doing while living in the United States. Also, during this time, Americans did not have much knowledge about cannabis and its effects, so they relied on the news to form their opinions on this stuff and then used that information to judge the immigrants. For example, police officers in Texas started claiming that marijuana incited violent crimes, aroused a lust for blood, and gave its users superhuman strength, which, of course, we know is not true. However, rumors continued to circulate, like how Mexicans were distributing this, and we quote, killer weed, to unsuspecting American schoolchildren. Around this same time, sailors and Indian immigrants brought the practice of smoking cannabis to the port cities along the Gulf of Mexico. In newspaper articles in New Orleans, they started associating marijuana with African Americans, jazz players, sex workers, and underworld whites. I have no idea what that means. What, there's some, like, white people who live in hollow earth or something that come out and smoke cannabis? I don't know. I've never heard of that term. So, this news article called it the marijuana menace and claimed that social deviants use this drug. As the drug grew more popular, it was more and more negatively associated with Mexican immigrants. Anti-drug campaigners began to warn against the encroaching drug 
describing the terrible crimes attributed to the drug and the Mexicans who used it. And just a little knowledge nugget here. Cannabis was only referred to as marijuana by anti-cannabis groups that wanted to kind of like play off an anti-immigrant sentiment and decided to call it something that sounded, and we quote, Mexicanish. So they called it marijuana instead of cannabis. And of course, this word began to spread. And to this day, everyone pretty much uses it, you know. So there you go. That's a little bit of history about that. And some people, I mean, associate it with it as like a derogatory term. I mean, you kind of think about it, it kind of is now. Yeah. Anyway, back to the timeline. All right. So in 1911, there was this dude named Henry Finger. Yes, that's his name. Now, Henry Finger was a chemist that went to the California College of Pharmacy and was on the California State Board of Pharmacy. So this California State Board was starting up an anti-narcotics campaign and their first target, marijuana. Yep, and Mr. Finger was leading this charge and he decided to write a letter to propose a law change. In this letter, Mr. Finger stated, and we quote, Within the last year, we in California have been getting a large influx of Hindus, and they have, in turn, started quite a demand for cannabis indica. They are a very undesirable lot, and the habit is growing in California very fast. The fear is now that it is not being confined to the Hindus alone, but that they are initiating our whites into this habit. I felt so racist reading that. Mr. White was racist. Mr. White, Jesus. Should, his name should have been Mr. White. It's Mr. Finger. Mr. Whitefinger. <laughs> Mr. Finger was racist. Uh, and by the way, the Hindu was not spelt H-I-N-D-U. It was spelt H-I-N-D-O-O. And it's the, pretty much the archaic spelling of Hindu. And some people consider it a derogatory term used to describe the people who practice Hinduism. And just an FYI, we are not racist. We're just reading off this letter, okay? Dan is Asian, all right? He's the one who read the letter. Yellow, yellow. He, he gets the pass for it. <laughs> anyway, back to the story. So two years later in 1913, California passed the first state cannabis prohibition law. Now, we're going to fast forward to the late 1920s. Around this time in 1929, the Great Depression officially started. This created widespread unemployment and poverty in the United States. This further created resentment and fear of immigrants and minorities. All right, before we get into the 1930s, we need to talk about an individual named Harry J. Anslinger. And this guy's a big piece of shit, by the way. He is. So from 1917 to 1928, Harry worked for various military and police organizations on stopping international drug trafficking. In 1929, Harry returned from his international work and became an assistant commissioner in the United States Treasury Department's Bureau of Prohibition. So one year later in 1930, at the age of 38, Harry was appointed the first commissioner of the brand new Federal Bureau of Narcotics. At this time, public officials from the Southwest and from Louisiana petitioned the Treasury Department to outlaw marijuana. Now, at first, Harry, who was the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, doubted the seriousness of the problem and the need for federal legislation. However, that quickly changed. Harry started pursuing the goal of a nationwide marijuana prohibition with all of his might. He started a large propaganda campaign and ran various headlines around the country saying, and we quote, 
murder weed found up and down the coast. As well as, and this one is my favorite, deadly marijuana, dope plant ready for harvest. That means enslavement of California children. Damn. Well, all right. (laughs) Took it to the extreme, Harry. Now, Harry also made public appearances and radio broadcasts where he asserted that the use of this evil weed led to killing, sex crimes, and even insanity. He even wrote sensational magazine articles with the titles like Marijuana, Assassin of the Youth. Now, due to this propaganda, by 1931, 29 states had outlawed marijuana, usually with no debates at all. They would bring it up, nobody would appeal it, the law would get passed. Now, even with that many states outlawing marijuana, it still did not stop the propaganda from being spread. In 1936, a film that was originally titled Tell Your Children, but ultimately was changed to Reefer Madness. Well, that film was released. This movie was an anti-marijuana propaganda film that helped fuel the hysteria about the drug. Its plot was about innocent high school students that were lured into trying marijuana and end up getting into a hit-and-run accident, killed someone, and another person committed suicide by jumping out of a window and showed that kids having hallucinations rapidly descending into the madness all due to smoking marijuana. And that's pretty much what the film's about. And I do want you to keep it in the back of your mind because we go back over this film during Strange Facts and Findings because me and Dan sat down and we watched this entire film from start to finish. And uh, we have a lot to say about it, okay? So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that in Strange Facts and Findings, but let's continue on with the timeline. So due to all this propaganda, in 1937, the United States Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act, effectively criminalizing the possession of marijuana throughout the United States. A week after it went into effect, 58-year-old Samuel R. Caldwell was arrested and became the first person convicted under this new federal law. Now, even though marijuana offenders had been treated with leniency under state and local laws, where, you know, marijuana had already been illegal at, Samuel was not given any slack. Like, previously, people, you know, if they were caught with marijuana in a state where it was illegal, they were like, eh, you know, it's not that big of a deal, kind of a slap on the wrist. Federally, they had to make an example out of him. Now, Judge J. Foster Symes lectured Samuel on the viciousness of marijuana and then sentenced him to four years at Leavenworth Penitentiary. For the next few decades between the 1950s to the late 1960s, there was a widespread adoption of marijuana by young hippies that were part of the anti-war movement at the time. Also, Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson commissioned reports on marijuana. These reports concluded the use of it did not induce violence or lead to the use of heavier drugs. Which is a complete contradiction of what we were told in school. I don't know how many times in elementary school I had that big-ass red dog. Dare. It's a gateway drug. Marijuana is. Anyway, at this point, individuals started to get hopeful, you know, since JFK and Lyndon Johnson commissioned these reports, and the report stated, hey, marijuana doesn't induce violence, doesn't lead to heavier drugs. Individuals started to get hopeful that the stigma that was attached to the use of cannabis, you know, hey, maybe it's going away. However, that all changed. In 1969, Richard Nixon became president. So Nixon hated the counterculture that was associated with marijuana. Due to this, 
He ignored all scientific, medical, or legal opinion on the matter. In 1970, the United States Congress passed the Controlled Substance Act, which created various legal categories or schedules for different types of drugs depending on their perceived public threat. Cannabis was placed along with heroin in the Schedule I category, which is the most restrictive one and reserved for drugs that are deemed to have no medical benefit and the highest potential for abuse. Now, placing cannabis in this category also made it extremely difficult for researchers and scientists to be able to study it. So, yeah, it just took cannabis to maybe, you know, being legalized to pushing it all the way back to the 1930s. So one year later in 1971, Nixon declared his War on Drugs campaign and created an investigation committee called the Schaefer Commission. This Schaefer Commission's role was to study drug abuse in America and report back to Nixon. The following year, in 1972, the Schaefer Commission presented its findings to Congress in a report titled Marijuana, A Signal of Misunderstanding. The report noted that most marijuana users were not dangerous at all, but rather more timid, drowsy, and passive, which I agree is accurate. Yeah. It also stated that cannabis does not pose any widespread danger to society and recommended using social measures other than criminalization to discourage its use. So I got to say, before I continue, how they spelled marijuana back in the day, today they use the J in it for marijuana. Back then, in their reports and shit, they spell it with an H. So when you go to say it, it's like marijuana. Yeah, they want you to emphasize the marijuana. Marijuana. But yeah, that's how they spelled it back in the day. And it bothers me. <laughs> anyway, moving forward. President Nixon ignored the commission's findings and went ahead with this anti-drug agenda. In the following years, Congress created the United States Drug Enforcement Agency, a.k.a. the shitty DEA. Now, even though Nixon ignored the commission's findings, some state officials did not. In 1973, Oregon ended up passing the first decriminalization statute. Over the next five years, 10 other states did the exact same thing, from California all the way to Mississippi. So just like before, things were starting to look up and individuals were hopeful that the stigma attached to the use of cannabis might be going away. However, another roadblock was hit, and this one would be one of the biggest setbacks. Absolutely. So in 1981, Ronald Reagan became the United States president. In 1986, President Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which made mandatory sentences for drug-related crimes. This law drastically increased federal penalties for the sale and possession of an array of drugs, including marijuana. Under this law, if you possessed 100 marijuana plants, you would receive the same penalty as if you possessed 100 grams of heroin. This law was then amended to establish what was called the three strikes and you're out policy. This new policy made it so that if you had three drug-related offenses, that you were sentenced to life in prison. Now, due to this new Anti-Drug Abuse Act, Drug-related arrests ended up soaring, creating a massive increase in state and federal prison populations. For an example, in 1986, 
when this law was enacted, there were roughly 400,000 total inmates in America's prison system. By 2015, the total number of inmates nearly quadrupled to almost 1.5 million individuals, which in turn made the United States have the highest prison and jail population, as well as the highest incarceration rate in the entire world. When looking deeper into the statistics, you will find that marijuana possession arrests account for more than half of all drug arrests. So as of 2023, 20 states and the District of Columbia have legalized the recreational adult use of marijuana, and 20 other states have decriminalized marijuana-related offenses, such as small-quantity marijuana possession, cultivation, and transfer. Now, despite the majority of the population wanting it to be legalized, under federal law, marijuana, aka cannabis, remains a Schedule I drug, making it so that even nonviolent first-time offenders convicted of selling it face the possibility of life in prison. And there you have it. The history of marijuana, a.k.a. cannabis, spanning from the early 1900s to 2023. Now, just like every week, we are going to dive into the strange facts and findings that we uncovered while researching this topic. So, Dan, do you want to start us off with this first one we have? Our first strange fact and finding revolves around an individual named Mark Young and the state of Indiana. So back in the early 1980s, there was a 59-year-old man named Claude Atkinson. Now, Claude was highly skilled at cultivating marijuana. He was very good at it. He had previously organized a huge marijuana farm in Illinois and Kentucky, so he had the knowledge of how it all worked. In 1984, law enforcement authorities had linked Claude to a pot farm in Indiana. In the following year, in 1985, he was caught growing marijuana in a warehouse. During this arrest, Claude had cut a series of deals with the government, snitching on others and only served a brief prison term. In 1988, Claude got out of prison and was ready to get back into the growing marijuana business. Around this time, he had met a 40-year-old unemployed truck driver named Ernest Montgomery, and Ernest wanted to make some money. So they agreed to form a partnership, with Ernest providing the capital, aka money, and Claude providing his growing expertise. They were like, let's start a marijuana business. By the spring of 1989, the group had approximately 12,500 seedlings of marijuana. What they needed next was a farm to plant them on. In May of 1989, Martha Brummett, an elderly woman in Morgan County, agreed to lease her farm to Claude and Ernest. The farm contained 40 acres of growing land and the group started up their operation. And by the way, I want to say, Martha had no idea that they were growing marijuana on it. I was about to ask, it's like, did she know what they were going to grow? And she's like, oh, can I have some of that? No, they just said they were farmers and they were planting corn. And you'll, you'll see why here in a minute. Their operation was extremely smart with what they did. I'm sorry, I just see Martha walking out there. Those are some weird corn. <laughs> <laughs> That's some weird corn you got out there. Oh, man. They each plowed and tilled the field fertilized it, and planted corn. Once the corn had reached a good height, they planted marijuana, hiding it amid the stalks. See what I say, smart. Ah, that is smart. Over the summer, they walked the fields, sexing the marijuana, eliminating all the males. The females left unpollinated would produce a much higher level of Delta 9 THC in their buds and would thus become a much more valuable crop. Yeah, so when you're growing marijuana... You see which plants are males, which are females, and then you eliminate the males. I did not know that. Yep. So in late September, before the corn leaves turned golden, 
the group harvested the marijuana and then cured it in the barn for two weeks and then cut it into books about a foot wide and three feet long. The books were then hauled into the farmhouse and then driven to the cabin for manicuring, which is where the stems, the orphan leaves, and the fan leaves were separated from the precious buds. So, of course, you throw away the stems, the orphan leaves, and the fan leaves, and you just keep the buds, those little round nuggets of goodness. So far, the operation had gone smoothly. Soon there would be about 900 pounds of high-quality marijuana to sell. Now the group needed buyers. Ernest Montgomery thought that Mark Young, a man whom he had met a few times, might know the right people to call. Mark Young was 36 years old and grew up in Christian Park Heights, which was a middle-class neighborhood on the east side of Indianapolis. When Ernest Montgomery called Mark Young, he was rebuilding motorcycles, selling used cars wholesale, and pretty much looking for a new income. Mark had held a financial interest in a number of massage parlors, which at that time were closed down. He was like, I need another income, because his dream was to get some money, move to Florida, build custom Harleys, and work part-time as a fishing guide on a lake. That sounds nice. That does sound nice. Be a fishing guide for myself, not for others. Yeah. Well, you, I'm talking about not strangers. I could take you fishing, but not no strangers. Anyway, let's continue with the story. All right, all right. In early October, Claude and Ernest went over to Mark's house to discuss the operation and sale. The two guys told Mark that the price of the marijuana was set at $1,200 a pound. Now, if Mark found buyers, he would receive a commission of $100 for every pound sold, and they had around 900 pounds to sell. Now, Mark agreed and stated that he had potential buyers already lined up. A short time later, Mark called Claude and Ernest and said, Hey, come over to my house. I have an individual flying down from New York who's interested in buying the marijuana, but he wants to meet you too. So Claude and Ernest came over to Mark's house, and then the man from New York showed up to Mark's house with $120,000 in a cardboard box and agreed to purchase a large amount. This buyer eventually returned and purchased 600 more pounds. By Christmas, all the high-quality marijuana was gone, and the last 300 pounds was distributed to workers who had helped with various tasks. And some of those workers who had helped were family members, such as Jerry Montgomery, who was related to Ernest Montgomery. On March 18, 1990, a pair of deputy sheriffs in Johnson County, Indiana, spotted a red jeep being driven erratically and signaled for its driver to pull off the road. Behind the wheel, they found Jerry Montgomery, intoxicated. Littering the truck were three empty vodka bottles, a five-gallon bucket full of marijuana, and a gray box containing more than $13,000 in cash. After obtaining a warrant, sheriffs searched Montgomery's house, finding more marijuana and a locked briefcase hidden under his bed. An investigation was started into Montgomery's relatives, which included Ernest, who was the grower. On August 22nd, federal, state, and local law enforcement agents arrested Claude, raided the farm, and with the help of volunteers from the Indiana National Guard, destroyed 10,000 marijuana plants because they already had restarted their grow again. Dang. Yeah. In May of 1991, Ernest Montgomery was arrested at his cabin where 7,000 marijuana seedlings sat in little pots ready for planting. Early that same morning, Mark Young was awakened by someone at the front door. It was the DEA. Mark was arrested for the sale of 700 pounds of marijuana and was convicted under federal law. 
Now, something to keep in mind is that Mark had never been charged with any drug-related crimes, and he had no history of violent crimes. And also, Mark's role in the illegal transaction had been that of like a middleman. So he had never actually like distributed the drugs or, you know, passed them off or anything like that. He simply introduced two people together hoping to sell a large amount of marijuana. So during Mark's trial, no marijuana, money, or physical evidence of any kind linked him to the crime. He was convicted solely on the testimony of Ernest and Claude, who are now cooperating with the government. On February 8, 1992, Judge Sarah Evans Barker sentenced Mark Young to life in prison without the possibility of parole. <laughs> they screwed him over big time. They did. And as crazy as that sounds, charges like this are happening all over the United States. And we figured that this story right here is a great example of how ridiculous the justice system is. The average person who murders someone gets eight years and eight months in prison. You have Mark Young, who's serving life without the possibility of parole for selling marijuana. Well, not even technically selling it, for introducing two people. So being a part of a sell, I guess. Yeah, that's like accessory to selling or some shit like that. I don't know the charges. It's ridiculous. Anyways, let's get into our next one. All right. So this next strange fact and finding is actually about the term 420. Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. So don't go nowhere. All right. Welcome back. So this one's not really much of a strange fact and finding. It's more of a long ass knowledge nuggy. But I thought it was fascinating. The story behind 420 all started back in 1971. Hold on. Do we need to explain 420 to the people that don't really know about it? I mean, I'm sure everybody does, right? Somebody says, oh, yeah, 420, bro. And then everybody's like, oh, they associate 420 with smoking weed, smoking marijuana. The story kind of. Oh, it tells it? Yeah, it kind of tells it. Okay. All right. So when these five friends from San Rafael, California, gathered together for weeks after school, they were actually in search of a patch of cannabis. The only clue that they had to go on was that it was growing somewhere near the Coast Guard station on Point Reyes Peninsula. After school each day, they would all meet up at this statue on the campus of San Rafael High School. The five friends were all athletes, so after school, they would all have practice, and not all of them got done at the same time. So they needed to find a time that would work for all of them after their practice. So they decided on the time for 20 p.m. So all throughout the school day, when they saw each other in the hallway, they would remind each other, Hey, 420, Lewis. Hey, 420. After a while, they dropped the Lewis part and they would just say, 420, to sort of like remind each other of the time that they would be meeting. One of the friends who gave an interview to the Huffington Post years later said, and we quote, We'd meet at 420 and get in my old 66 Chevy Impala. We did it week after week. We never actually found the patch, though. Now, even though they never found the patch of cannabis by the Coast Guard station, they created a new word or term for marijuana that they could say. And you're probably sitting there like, okay, so how did this 420 catch on if it was just, you know, a couple friends back in 1971 that started it? Looking into it more, one of the guys in that friend group actually ended up managing a band that was associated with the Grateful Dead who had moved into Marin County, which is where San Rafael is. Now, the Grateful Dead and their fans, they were all cannabis advocates. They liked to smoke. Nice. So the friend that managed the band would still go around saying, 420, 
referencing cannabis. It caught on, and the term began to circulate around Marin County. Then, a reporter from the magazine called High Times heard the term while at a Grateful Dead show. The reporter then wrote about it in the magazine. One of the former editors for High Times said that once it appeared in High Times, the expression spread farther and faster than ever. And sure enough, that is exactly what it did. It spread all along the West Coast, and the next thing you know, it spread all across the United States. And there you have it, the meaning and the start of the term 420, and how it was created, and where it is now. Boom. And you put something down here, Dan, this link. What is this? I did a little bit more research on it, and supposedly there are two stories of two different groups of friends at the same high school, and they actually have like a beefing war with each other. Now, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. It's our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. Now, this other group said that one of their friends actually created the term 420. It was pretty much they were all sitting down in the basement of this guy's house, and they were all supposedly smoking out of bamboo bongs, which at the time, there were no bongs ever created. Oh. So he's guessing he's trying to take up saying that he created the first bong, too. But they were all smoking downstairs, and someone asked him, what time it was. And he said, oh, it's 4.20. And that's how the term started. I believe the Grateful Dead one. I believe that one, because he's like, oh, he just asked what time it was, and I said 4.20, and it just kind of caught on, and then everyone started using it. And not believable. Yeah, and then the fact that bongs weren't created, and he's down there, oh, we used a bamboo bong. Like, get out of here. Yeah. But yeah, they supposedly have a beefing war with each other. They always try to disprove and what, at high school reunions, they, like, fight each other? Probably. I created the term. No, I created the term. I mean, they fight over it in, like, the Grateful Dead story. They actually hired a private investigator to search and hunt down the are Coast Guard. You, are you kidding me? No, they hired them to find the Coast Guard that gave them the map of where the patch of cannabis was. That's why they were searching for it. This is a beefing war that has gone on for so long. Over the term 420. Yeah. It's not like they're getting paid or anything for it. They just, I guess, want the... Publicity? Publicity for it. The stardom, the fame? Yeah. Okay. I thought that was just fascinating, and it kind of made me laugh. It was. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so let's get into our next strange fact and finding, which is about a man named James Munch. So, during the Reefer Madness era, Henry Anslinger was publishing for the banning of marijuana. And one of the guys that consulted him was Dr. James Munch. Now, Dr. Munch was a doctor of philosophy and a graduate of Temple University. And according to his testimony, he majored in toxicology, which was the actions of poisons, and pharmacology, which was the action of drugs on animals and on man. Now, Dr. Munch's part was to help Anslinger with connecting marijuana to as many crimes as possible to help ban it. The two notable cases that Dr. Munch testified in were the Ethel Soul trial and the Arthur Friedman testimony. During the Ethel Soul trial, Ethel, aka Bunny, and a friend were on trial for murdering a bus driver. The two had robbed the bus driver of $2.10. Now, this was during the Great Depression, okay? So that was like a chunk of change there for them. So it wasn't just like $2.10 now where you pretty much can't buy anything. No. I can't even think of anything that you could buy for $2.10. You can't even... 
can't even buy a soda pop anymore for that. Unless you use the soda machines out front, but then those sodas probably been there forever. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. So the defense of Bunny, you know, a.k.a. Ethel, made the claim that she was a victim of marijuana madness. The defense team called Dr. Munch, who was supposed to be helping Anslinger and the FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, but his testimony was a little odd. This was his testimony, the exact words from Dr. Munch that they had written down in trial. I smoked the cigarette while sitting in a chair. I had a dream. I had dreamed that I'd lived in an ink bottle for 200 years. Then I climbed to the neck of the bottle and I wrote a book. Then I flew out of the bottle and I flew around the world twice. Then I awakened. I had been asleep in the chair for only 16 minutes. Are you kidding me? Is that his, is that what he said? <laughs> that is exactly what he said. In and court. I'm guessing when he said smoke the cigarette, it's cigarette, marijuana cigarette. Oh my God. What the hell is he smoking? So a little off topic. This reminded me of the movie Grandma's Boy. The boss, he's like, I was sitting there meditating. Like I flew out of a bird or some shit <laughs> like that. I'm like, this guy is tripping balls. Yeah, that's not. What happens when you smoke marijuana? Uh, he just made that shit up. Yeah, so as he told the story, everyone in the room was like, no shit, marijuana is crazy. Dr. Munch also stated that the reaction by dogs is similar to that of humans. Wait, he was getting dogs high? He was getting dogs high. Oh my God. Yeah, so the judge, Daniel Brennan, would have none of this nonsense, and he was quoted saying, He's going to testify about marijuana's effects on dogs and then say it's the same as humans? What kind of testimony is that? I mean, you think about it. They say that smoking marijuana, you become violent and all that stuff. So that means that dogs and stuff are having the same reaction. Yeah. The judge was like, no, that can't be right. Which I've never seen anyone smoke marijuana and get super violent. But I'll, I'll say that for our personal thoughts and theories at the end. Sorry. Yeah. Continue with the story. All right. So even the prosecutor started to question if Dr. Munch was actually an expert. Since he was not a physician and he was only telling us about his own experiences with smoking marijuana once. So that testimony was a bust, but that didn't stop him from giving his expert testimony in the next trial. Oh, good Lord. So in April of 1938, Dr. Munch again was called to be an expert witness on marijuana, this time in New York City. He was called by the defense team for Mr. Friedman one of the five youths that were charged with shooting and killing Detective Michael J. Foley. On April 7th, Dr. Munch appeared in court to testify. Again, he spoke about being trapped in an ink jar, word for word like he had just said in his last trial. And Slinger and Munch realized that the more Munch testified, the more it helped the propaganda against marijuana, but it had a negative impact on the legal side of things. It was actually helping criminals say, I smoked marijuana before the crime, so I am a victim of the side effects of marijuana. It made me do it. So with some criminals using this tactic, it actually got them off of a death sentence. So Anslinger had Munch stop testifying, but not before he was quoted saying in another trial, and we quote, After two puffs on a marijuana cigarette, I turned into a bat. <laughs> oh, yeah. He then goes on to claim that he flew around the room and down a 200-foot deep ink well. His testimony only made things worse in a legal sense. And just an FYI, Anslinger, that Henry Anslinger, 
he was appointed the head in 1930, and he stayed there till the 60s. And he ended up going to different doctors trying to get their, you know, opinions on marijuana, but he wanted the bad opinions. And nine out of 10 doctors that he visited all was like, it doesn't make you violent. All these claims are false. It just makes the person drowsy, maybe hungry, relaxed, except for one doctor who, you know, backed up his claims. And that is the one he cherry picked. And that was him right there who did the testimony. So took two puffs and I turned into a bat. Oh, man. Thank you for that strange fact and finding. You're welcome. All right. So let's get on to the next one. So this strange fact and finding is about the movie Reefer Madness. We were wondering who actually funded this movie. So looking into it, the movie was never actually funded by the U.S. government, but actually funded by a church group under the title Tell Your Children. Which that title right there was the original name for the movie until it was bought out by Dwayne Esper who recut the film for production. So this church group was supposedly searching for an easy, you know, sin to blame for society's struggles. And you have to remember that it was like during the Great Depression and everyone was struggling really bad. And they thought, hey, cannabis use, that's a perfect issue at the time. You know, not much is known about it. It'd be easy to get a religious following against it in, you know, the early 1930s. So... That's what they kind of used was cannabis. Yeah. So Louis J. Gasnier was asked by the church group to put together a film on the terrible effects of cannabis use and how it impacted American society. After the movie was produced, it seemed that the Tell Your Children group decided to change their name to Motion Picture Health Association, a.k.a. MPHA. So this MPHA would go on to produce some other films that would so-call, and we quote, educate the public about health and social issues. They created the films, which were called Sex Madness, which was published in 1938, which was a film that aimed to educate the public about the supposed dangers of sexually transmitted diseases. Sex Madness. Come see it now. Everybody's f***ing and sucking. Another film that they created was the 1933 one called Damaged Lives, it was a film that depicted the dangers of illegal abortions. Come and see it. Damaged lives. Abort your baby fetuses and go to hell. That's what they were saying. I mean, yeah. The other film that they uh, produced was the 1935 film titled The Pace That Kills. And it was a film that aimed to warn the public about the dangers of drug addiction. Come and see your loved ones get taken over and held hostage by evil drugs. And then you go to hell. I mean, all of these films were supposedly just like Reefer Madness, where they exaggerated on the topics in the films and were all considered artifacts of the propaganda of the time. But in the 1950s, the film company, you know, finally dissolved with the decline of the film industry during that time. But yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, we're going to have to watch those three films that we didn't watch. We watched Reefer Madness, but we didn't watch these other ones. thought it was kind of weird that it was actually a church group that funded this. Well, you got to have more money into the church, you know? What way to do that rather than to scare the public, keep them scared, have them come to church, have them tithe? That's true. All right, so our next strange fact and finding is about DuPont. So as we were digging deeper into the connection of why the United States government would want to ban marijuana, we tried to look at different connections of various companies, various organizations, and other individuals, and we ended up stumbling upon the DuPont Company. 
and how they provided some level of support to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and its efforts to criminalize marijuana. So DuPont had an interest in preventing the commercialization of hemp-based products. Hemp fiber was seen as a potential competitor to synthetic fibers like nylon. Now, DuPont had developed nylon, and they were marketing this product aggressively. Then, of course, hemp fiber was also used in the production of paper, which would threaten DuPont's paper production interests. Granted, it wasn't only DuPont. There were probably other petrochemical industries involved with the support as well. Also, Henry Anslinger, he held uh, company interests in paper companies, so he didn't want hemp going out there ruining that. It's all about money, man. They don't care about public opinion. All, all it is is about making as much money as they can. Then that's it. All right, so our last strange fact of finding is actually about the Marijuana Tax Act stamp that was needed to grow, sell, or distribute marijuana legally in the 1930s. Even though they had a process for you to get approval from the government to work with marijuana, it was still very difficult to actually get approved. It was also an expensive process that they had to go through. Not only did they have to fill out lengthy paperwork, but they had to pay a fee of $1 per ounce of marijuana. They had to also provide detailed information about their business practices and the quantities of marijuana they intended to sell. But guess what, though? This entire thing was used as a trap. You needed the stamp to grow, sell, and distribute. But it was also illegal without the stamp to possess or transfer marijuana without it. So anyone that tried to obtain a stamp would have to admit to possessing marijuana and more than likely would face criminal charges for it. So it was a honeypot. It was a honeypot. <laughs> the corruption. They set that up perfectly and no one realized it really. That if you have marijuana, you have to file to get approval to sell it, you know, and all that stuff with this stamp. And you had to pay a fee of a dollar per ounce of marijuana. Depending on how much you had to pay in fees, they would know how much marijuana you had. Then, of course, they had you fill out information about your business, where you had it all at and everything. So they pretty much had you confess to having marijuana and then they would just come, arrest you, take your marijuana and charge you. Corruption. That's some sneaky shit right there. It is. It's a trap. So now we're going to get into the theories section of the show where we discuss the possible theories revolving marijuana and why it was banned. So, Dan, do you want to tell us about the first theory we got? So the first theory is called racism. This theory states the reason marijuana was banned in the United States in the 1930s was due to racism and xenophobia. At that time, marijuana use was associated with Mexican immigrants and African-Americans, and politicians and law enforcement officials used racist and fear-mongering rhetoric to help promote the anti-marijuana laws. And the public at the time took the bait and ran with it because the politicians and law enforcement and everyone back then knew that, hey, Great Depression was going on and you had a lot of Americans at the time were having trouble even just feeding their families. And then you have immigrants coming up from the South and you got some coming over from boats and the government wants to put the blame on somebody else rather than, hey, we messed up. So put the blame on these immigrants coming up smoking cannabis. They're the cause of all your problems. Yep. Honestly, this ain't really a theory. This is factual. They did do that. Yeah, I'd say that's one of the reasons, but I think it's more than that, which we're going to get into this next theory, which is called political pressure. So this theory states that some believe that marijuana was banned due to political pressure from international organizations or domestic organizations. 
Now, politicians may be hesitant to support marijuana legalization, fearing backlash from those who are strongly against drug use, thus jeopardizing their chances of re-election. I can kind of see this, but I don't think it's so much the organizations, more so the voter base. If you look at who votes, it's the elderly majority of the time, okay? Majority, yeah. The elderly still have the views carried over from 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s of this cannabis being bad and all the fake stuff they were taught about reefer madness. So if they see that this politician is supporting legalization of cannabis, they'll be like, oh, no, we can't support him. He supports the devil's weed, you know, Satan's spinach. The devil's lettuce. Yeah. So that theory, you know, is called political pressure, but it kind of, it rolls into the next one kind of perfectly. You want to tell us about it, Dan? Yeah. So this next theory is called Big Pharma and Medical Professionals. In this theory, it is believed that big pharma and medical professionals had a hand in banning or regulating cannabis because of the health benefits that it could have with certain conditions. It would cut into their profits of prescribing their medication and would be no reason to keep going and see the doctors to be prescribed them. In a study done by the Journal of Health Economics, researchers found that the use of prescription drugs for a number of conditions decreased in states where medical marijuana is legal. It found that people that take anxiety medicine decreased by 13.5%, the use of prescription drugs for depression decreased by 12.5%, and the use for pain medication decreased by 11.8%. And just an FYI, this doesn't mean that they 100% stopped taking the medicine, they just didn't use it as much. Ah, but still it cut into the profits of the big pharma. It did. And you know what they're all about. Profits. Profits. Profits over people. What they use those profits for? To pay politicians. That's right. Line the pockets of the congressmen who are supposed to work for you, but instead they work for the... Big pharma. Big pharma. You know, all them. And they pass laws or bills and shit that work in their favor. Yep, in the corporation's favor. All right, so let's get into this next theory, which is called government control. So in this theory, the government wanted to ban marijuana, thinking that it would cause the people to become too independent. So the government saw what was going on in Mexico with the revolution, and it was well known that the individuals down there, you know, they smoked marijuana to get intoxicated. It was normal. The U.S. government thought, oh, you know, maybe the reason for the revolution and the people of Mexico becoming violent was because, you know, they smoked marijuana. So the government said, we need to ban it in the United States to stop that from happening here. So they started spreading propaganda that marijuana made you go crazy and caused you to become violent. Pretty much they were afraid. They looked at what was going on in Mexico, didn't want uh, the people here to become too independent and violent, and they associated the violence in the Mexican Revolution to cannabis, and that's why they banned it. Yeah. I can kind of see all these, but I'm going to hold my tongue till the end. All right. So we'll move on to the next theory, which is called law enforcement funding. The theory goes that the ongoing war on drugs provides significant funding to many law enforcement agencies. If marijuana becomes fully legal, this will reduce the funding to these agencies so many believe that they oppose legalizing it so the law enforcement agencies can maintain their funding and resources. According to a report by the American Civil Liberties Union in 2020, there were over 6.1 million arrests for drug offenses in the United States between 2010 and 2018. Marijuana offenses account for over 40% of those arrests. That is over 2.4 million arrests for marijuana alone. Good Lord. 
That's a lot. That is a lot. And I, I can see that one as a theory. I can see that. So let's get on to the next one, which is called stigma and misinformation. So for decades, the image that was painted for marijuana was that it was a dangerous drug. It had no medical benefits whatsoever. And this image, you know, of that ended up creating a lasting stigma. So this sort of misinformation may have caused some policymakers to resist legalizing marijuana, which it did. They believe that they are doing the right thing and protecting society from causing harm to itself. I think that goes along with what you said earlier about the older voters mindset. This could be with the older politicians. Yeah, I agree. All right. So get into this last theory, Dan, and tell us about it. And then we'll go into our uh, personal theories. All right. So this last theory is called private prison industry. This, I thought, connected with the law enforcement theory, and it's that private prison industry benefits from the high incarceration rates related to drug offenses. If they legalize marijuana, this would reduce the number of drug-related arrests and decrease the population of private prisons, which would lead to a decrease in the demand for private prisons. This would cause the private prisons to lobby against legalizing marijuana. So take CoreCivic, for example. It is one of the largest private prison companies in the United States. In 2020, they made around $1.8 billion for the year. That includes all of their operations, which include prisons, detention centers, community reentry programs, and electronic monitoring. All of these operations are focused on confinement and supposedly rehabilitation services for inmates and detainees. There's no rehabilitation that's done there. No. They just stick them in a cage. And private prisons is modern-day slavery, and it should be outlawed. There should be no reason why private prisons exist. No, there shouldn't. There shouldn't be that many people in prison in the first place. Yeah, there shouldn't be. I mean, what, you said 40% of them are there for minor marijuana offenses? Over 40%. It's ridiculous. So now we're going to get into our own personal thoughts and theories surrounding all this. In my personal opinion, all the theories that we talked about were not theories. I think all of those are true, and they all play a part into why marijuana is still federally illegal today. It's a combination of the private prison, law enforcement, the misinformation in the older voters, the misinformation in the older politicians, kind of government control, you know, political pressures, big pharma, all of that, all of that rolled up into one plays a part. And I don't think it's going to change until 20 years from now, as sad as that is, but that's my prediction. By 2040, marijuana will be federally legal. I think it'll be sooner than that, because like you said, all of these theories, they're not really theories. They all play a role in this. I think it's government control with it, but not in the sense that the theory goes along, but more as in how much money they can make from it. We know that the CIA, you know, trafficked drugs. They were doing dealings behind the scenes. And we talk about it today in our Patreon episode. That's true. I suggest go sign up to it. It's five bucks a month. You can listen to our, our CIA drug running episode that we published today. Extremely good episode. Sorry, continue, Dan. Let us traffic knowledge to you. Oh, shit. Now, we know that they trafficked drugs to fund other projects. I think it would legalize sooner, knowing the fact that many states are legalizing it. They're selling it. They got, what, marijuana dispensaries everywhere nowadays in those states that are legal. The government's profit that they're making off of the taxes off of that is actually pretty damn good. It's enormous. Soon it's going to be like, say, back in Virginia. The sale of liquor. Like here, it's not state controlled. In Virginia, we have ABC stores. They're state controlled. The state sells the liquor there. 
So they make profit off of that. Soon, I think it's going to be like the government's going to have dispensaries, only the government selling marijuana, and it's going to make a huge profit off of that. And I think right now it's like in the testing period to see how well that these other dispensaries and stuff are selling. So have you ever been to a dispensary before? I have. I've been to a couple of them. I went up to uh, a couple in Maine and talk about professional. Dude, they were very professional there. Yeah. You walk in, there's a guy there who's like a security guard. He takes your ID, checks it, scans it, gets you in on like a little iPad thing. Person walks around the corner, escorts you over to this array of glorious bud bud, <laughs> bud and pretty much anything you would ever want. All these different... Uh, strains that you could have and it was absolutely amazing i just said i want that that and that and that and they clicked it on the ipad and they say okay go over to the checkout counter i went over to the checkout counter they had my bag already prepped ready to go i paid and bada bing bada boom i was out of there yeah when i went i had no clue what i was looking at i saw pipes bongs no idea about strains i have no clue i have no knowledge of any hey, of that. but they talked you through it didn't they they would explain everything about it they wouldn't tell you what year was made when they started it it even has like the percentage of THC inside of it and what the effects you would get from this strain. Yeah. Very, very professional and controlled and safe, in my opinion. It was very safe. Like when you go in, they looked at your ID, made sure you were of age to smoke and everything like that. But that's how I think it would go. How well controlled that is. The government's just using that as a testing phase to soon when they'll take over selling it. I mean, they already, uh, what, medical professionals already provide medical marijuana? Yeah. So sooner or later, this is just going to be the government having control over it, which is that's what's going to cause a war. No, it's not. Yeah, it's going to be a war on government. Free our weed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to add to this episode today about marijuana? By the way, happy 420. That's right. Happy 420. We figured marijuana on 420. (laughs) Yeah, what a great date to publish this episode on. But yeah, no, honestly, just it just shows how corrupt our government really is with being sneaky and shit. Yeah, they talk about misinformation and they're the ones that are doing it. They're the ones that are spreading misinformation, setting people up and shit like that. Come on, people that are trying to do the right thing, follow the laws and they still screw them over. Yeah, if you or a loved one have been personally affected by the marijuana, send us an email. We'd love to hear about your story. With that being said, I want to thank you for joining our episode this week. That is the end of the marijuana episode. Now we are going to transition into our on the scene. Now, if you don't know what our on the scene is, it's where each week an individual sends in their on the scene, which is pretty much someone going around interviewing strangers or family members or even themselves or themselves asking about current conspiracies or past conspiracies and their take on it. Yep. Now, anyone can do this, including you. Yes, you, the person listening to this right now. All you have to do is get your phone out, okay? Click record. Record for less than two minutes. No longer, please, than two minutes. And make sure there's no music in the background. We can't play it if it has music. And no eating food while you're recording, please. None of that, please, for the love of God. And then when you're done... You can email us that audio recording to Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at Theories of the Third Kind, or you can email it to Dan, D-A-N, at Theories of the Third Kind, and we will play it at the end of our show each week. 
So for this week's On the Scene, we have Paige. Paige. Yeah. So we're going to play that right now. Hey, guys. It's Paige from Oregon, a.k.a. reigning audio champion. On the Scene once again, here with my girlfriend. And ask her a question, and then I'm going to end it by asking you guys the same question. Kind of like last time. So I think that it's easy for a lot of people to claim that they would visit certain spooky locations, either because it's haunted or there's rumors of cannibals or cryptids or whatever the reason might be. I think it's easy for people to say that they would go there, kind of in a joking or casual conversation manner. But actually going there is an entirely different thing. But sitting here right now, what's one place that you know that you wouldn't go to without having to go there to find out that it was a bad idea? I would not step foot into the Zach Bagans Museum. Too many spooky artifacts? Too many. Yeah. With a lot of history. I think for me, it's the Cecil Hotel because I don't believe that there's a whole lot of places out there that are allegedly cursed that actually are cursed. I think a lot of it's probably just folklore and rumors and whatnot, legends. But I think the Cecil Hotel is actually cursed. And I wouldn't want to find out the hard way. So that same question goes to you guys, Aaron and Dan. What's one place that you would not step foot into sitting there right now? Anyway, see you guys next time. Love you. And I'm proud of you. Thank you, Paige. Yes. I can't do the high pitch voice. Thank you, Paige. The reigning, reigning world champion audio master. What the hell? Hell yeah, there's the champion right there, damn. <laughs> Sorry. That damn laptop just randomly plays audio. All right, Dan, what's your answer? I want to hear yours first. No, I got to save mine for last. I don't have a specific one, though. But I will say this. If it's an outside area pertaining to werewolves, just because I have that PTSD of that one. Okay, that makes sense. When I worked with your brother in Wisconsin, there was... A location where supposedly a werewolf was. It was like on this road. Like a cryptid? They said it was a werewolf oh, in that area. Okay. And people that drove through the area, they would see something running along beside their car. And some of them had like actual scratch marks along the side of their vehicles when it was near them. So one day after I got out of our shift, we decided to drive around and we were trying to find that area. Because you know how your brother is. He's all into that shit. Yep. Me, eh, I'm like, all right, you know, need to waste some time. So we end up driving and this road just drove through cornfields. We started driving. It was clear night. Then all of a sudden it just started to get super, super foggy. And literally with headlights on and everything, I could barely see how far in front of me. It gave off the creepiest vibe ever. And me and your brother freaked out for the fact like we had no idea where we are anymore. We couldn't see like how far ahead of us. So I just pretty much hit the gas and just sped through there. Then all of a sudden, the fog disappeared, and we were in the city. We literally stopped at the stoplight and just looked around. You time traveled. We did something. It was weird. A time slip. Reality slip. Yes, I don't know. I don't like anything involving werewolves. Okay, so like no forests or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind going to the forest, but if there's sightings or anything with werewolves, dogmen, no. See, you know me. You're more cautious. I am. Me? You throw me in the mix, baby. I don't care where I'm going. I'll take a Ouija board out there and I'll sit with the wolves. They'll probably kill me, but I'll be out there with them. 
I'll be out there with the gun <laughs> trying to survive. Now, there's one place that I would not go. And it has nothing to do with any creatures, hauntings or anything like that. Do not send me. Do not send me to an ISIS controlled part of Iraq. I can't do the mandatory prayers. I would immediately be beheaded due to my tattoos. See a skull with sigils on my forearm. Devil! Anyway, yeah, I would not uh, go to any ISIS-controlled areas in Iraq. Count me out. Now, you can send me to North Korea. I think I'd be fine over there. North Korea? Yeah, send me to North Korea. Go ahead. We can start a GoFundMe. Aaron's ticket to North Korea. Are there flights to North Korea? Yeah, they do tours to North Korea. You can fly over there. I didn't know that. I think you got to fly to China and then take a connecting flight from China to North Korea. Poyang or Poyang or whatever that's called. Capital. Gotcha. I actually would like to go over there. North Korea could be fun. Yeah. So that's where I would not go is uh, somewhere in Iraq. That's ISIS controlled. I agree. I wouldn't go there. Yeah. But besides that, you can send me anywhere. I don't care. I'm down for it. He is. Aaron's one of those guys. You throw him into it. He don't care. And I know some of you may be like, oh, he's just saying that. But no, I'm dead serious. You just wait. You just wait. Anyways, thank you again, Paige, for your On the Scene, the reigning, reigning, reigning audio world champion of On the Scene. Boom. We love you and we're proud of you. Much love. All right. Uh, before we roll this episode out, I just want to state again that uh, shout outs are now Patreon exclusive. They are starting up at the beginning of May. So if you want a shout out, birthday shout out, anniversary shout out, wedding shout out, whatever, submit those via Patreon. They're only for Patreon members, only because we've been absolutely getting flooded and we haven't been able to uh, keep up with all of them. Yeah. So we decided to dedicate them to only Patreon only members, which if you aren't a member of Patreon, you can sign up for five bucks a month, 16 cents a day. It gets you access to the entire back catalog of 156 total episodes, and they don't have any ads on them, okay? No ads. There you go. You just go to our website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up there. With that being said, I want to thank you for joining us today, and again, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone.